Why have we been doing what we have been doing? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. This episode is called Message in a Bottle because we're going to speak directly to the people of the future 200 years from now. We hope they will find this recording and know how to play it back to hear our description of the 21st century. We're assuming that someone is there to hear us. <laughs> yes. Like the ancient <laughs> like the ancient Irish monks who preserved Latin and Greek learning in Ireland during the early Middle Ages. We're doing our sort of our own monk thing <laughs> and preserving important ideas that you in the future may need for either the study of our time or for the creation of a new civilization. We can think. Uh, is Swain is, is Swain Irish? No, Swain is no. Swain is English and English. waspy. I'm I'm the person they hate the most. And you're you're kind of waspy on both sides. Yes, I really am. There's... I'm wa- I'm waspy on my father's side and uh, Austrian on my mother's. So there's no Irish. Well, there's some Irish in my father's family, but we. We'll just go ahead. We'll just be monks, and we won't acquire the Irish. We'll we'll be monks and forget about the Irish part. Okay, got it. So we thought of uh, at least five possible futures, each one of them very different, and we can't possibly predict which one or more of these will happen. Uh, Number one is that humans will be replaced entirely by machines. Number two is that there will be a few humans left who are living in huts and hovels. Number three, it's something like Star Trek. Yep, that's a good one. Number four, humanity has genetically engineered a a master race like Homo Deus. That's like Yuval Noah Harari. Man gods. Mm -hmm. Uh, Five, we just gave up and said the future is completely unimaginable for us here in the 21st century. Right. But of course, I had to. I had to be uh, Mr. Doom and Gloom and say that there is another possibility, and that is that we've completely blown ourselves to bits, and there's nothing left, man or machine, on the planet to hear this. And if and if so, oh well, it was nice while it lasted. I hate to laugh, but you're right. Well, that is but a, our, our that, technology that's... continues to increase, and there does not seem to be a corresponding increase. In intelligence or wisdom or the ability to handle our stuff, you know. Oh, this is this sounding really, really awful. Anyway, well, it's true. We will assume. Yeah, I know. We'll assume that there is somebody who will hear this. So we want to talk about some ideas that were not expressed much in the news media, textbooks, other publications of our time. The media of our day tended to focus on. Politics, economics, social divisions, inequality, war, climate change is a big one. We think those are important topics, but we want to bring in a vitally important component that underlies many of these issues. We want to discuss human motivation and the importance of understanding the role it played in forging our future, which is, of course, your present 200 years from now. We want to discuss the role death anxiety played for us in this era. We're going to put a little uh, disclaimer here, Steve, that we're going to talk about some stuff that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And if people in our age, people and now, people at our time makes very uncomfortable. 
Yeah, but the people in the future... They, they may they I mean, may have embraced it. They may have taken it in somehow and not been so freaked out by it. We're freaked out by it for good reason. Well... And uh, so if people have a, a functioning system that's working for them, keep doing that. And what do we know anyway? Don't listen to us. Okay. So you in the future, you may understand this already. We hope that you do. But even if you do, please take this one time to hear our take on things. You may find it illuminating. Even if you're a machine or you're some homo deus creature that's genetically designed to live 500 years, even if you live in a Star Trek future populated with contented people who have miraculously managed to overcome human nature, or if you live in a world that's beyond our understanding, we may still have something you haven't thought of. After all, our role as forebears is no small thing. We're kind of responsible for you being there. Yeah. And we have explanations for how you got where you are. Okay, yeah. Now, if you're an unfortunate human or group of survivors in a dystopian future, we offer our sincere apologies. We, we are not key people uh, responsible for cutting down forests or mining coal, but we do drive gasoline-powered cars now, and we do heat our homes with oil now, and we use electricity that's been generated with fossil fuels, and we buy food that's been produced by polluting agriculture systems. We buy consumer goods mag- manufactured in polluting factories. So we are complicit, and we understand if you blame us for your failed civilization and your poisoned world. We're not executives of the oil companies, but we're going along for the ride. Yeah, I, I guess mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I, you have to, you have to say that. You have to say that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's look at death anxiety and its central role in human motivation. Many of our ideas come from the late 20th century thinker Ernest Becker. So all traditional humans die eventually. For us in the 21st century, 120 years seems to be the maximum, and only in exceedingly rare cases. Most of us don't get anywhere near that, and the way things are going now wouldn't really want to. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There are unusual animals in our time, mainly sea creatures that can live 200 to 500 years, like sharks and whales and clams. Uh, We aspire to live longer like them, but don't yet understand the aging process for humans. You in the future may have worked it out and may be living 500 years. What we do have in common with all other animals is the will to survive. We sometimes call it the survival instinct. Like all animals, we do what is necessary to survive long enough to reproduce, and like many complex animals, we strive to live long enough to care for our young. One of our primary survival mechanisms that we share with other animals is fear. Fear is an unpleasant feeling triggered by the perception of danger, real or imagined. Fear can be controlled, what we call repressed or suppressed, to allow an animal to function, to flee, to fight, or to freeze. In humans, the unconscious, imperfect suppression of fear or the conscious repression of fear we call just repression for short. Repression of fear is necessary for survival, but ours is not complete. 
It's imperfect, otherwise it would not work to keep us motivated to stay alive. Sane humans can control fear, but we can't eliminate it. Like our animal cousins, our control must be imperfect for evolutionary reasons. In our century, sane adult humans, using inductive and deductive reasoning, are able to determine that they will eventually die. As far as we know, we're the only species who have the intellectual capability to predict the future. This process produces in us an emotion akin to fear. We are profoundly uncomfortable when we think about our inevitable deaths. We call this emotion dread. Dread is a potentially debilitating emotion that is subtly different from fear. Many people claim that they do not fear death, which is true. A knife at my throat will cause fear. All animals react to danger in this way. However, imagining my inevitable but not imminent death will cause dread, something no other animal experiences as far as we know. So these two human traits, the survival instinct and the certain knowledge of our mortality, are in conflict and can cause severe psychological harm in anyone ill-equipped to handle the emotional conundrum. We see this in some people that we call mentally ill. The feeling this conflict produces in us causes anticipation with great apprehension. As we understand it, our defenses against dread, like our ability to control fear, are imperfect. Our ability to consciously suppress or unconsciously repress the dread of death must be imperfect for evolutionary reasons. The result is that some residual form of fear remains. We call this residual fear death anxiety, something we assume all humans have shared over thousands of years. Cultures exist primarily to defend us against death anxiety and free us to function in the service of the group and advance our species. For the majority of us humans, our most common psychological defense against the malady of knowing we will die is denial. This is why Ernest Becker titled his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. We pretend death is not inevitable in our day-to-day -day lives. Our denial takes many forms, but the most successful one over the, over the centuries is religion. All major religions through thousands of years of human history fortify their believers with the promise of actual immortality, which means they will not die. Reincarnation, resurrection, an immortal soul, and eternal life in heaven with God and the angels all promise life beyond mortal death and defend their adherence against death anxiety. The country we inhabit, the United States of America, was founded by religious zealots called Pilgrims and Puritans and a variety of Christian believers. Many of the founders practiced a faith called deism. These are all excellent defenses against death anxiety. There are other forms of symbolic immortality like wealth, fame, power, beauty, and achievement. I'd add having children is another one that bolster our self-esteem, 
a primary psychological defense against death anxiety. Culture is defined as the social behavior, institutions, and norms found in human societies. I have another definition of culture that I'd like to insert here. Go ahead. Culture is the particular style that a society adopts to lie to itself about the nature of reality. Love it. Isn't that good? Yeah. It is a way humans organize and express their knowledge, belief, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, and traditions. A primary function of culture is to defend against death anxiety with stratagems for self-esteem called heroism. I, I know this is a lot to take in, but follow along with us and it'll start to make sense, I hope. These many opportunities for literal or symbolic immortality, our defenses against death anxiety, are causes for things like great achievement, morality, ethics, and social cohesion. They're also causes of great evil, like wars, persecution, and hatred. Opportunities for immortality, what some of us call immortality projects, are primary human motivators. Over the centuries, immortality projects include building pyramids and temples, uniting groups of people into societies and nations, scientific discoveries and inventions, creations of empires and large corporations, and devotion to families and the young. As we understand it, our defenses against death anxiety are imperfect. But the combination of literal immortality promised by religion and symbolic immortality provided by opportunities for heroism keep death anxiety at bay and enable us to function successfully. So the problem our society faces today is the decline in the power of religion within our culture. Many, if not most of us, still give religion lip service, practicing it once a week or less, but it in no way matches our pilgrim and Puritan ancestors' devotion. We rarely, if ever, talk about a creator, let alone follow his commands. We spend far more of our time thinking about work, money, achievement, and social status, all alternative sources of self-esteem. They're all symbolic defenses against death anxiety, but without the cosmic certainty of an actual immortality guaranteed by religion. Our culture is being greatly weakened by this development, brought on primarily by the rise of science. As the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche declared in 1882, and maybe I should read this with a German accent. Well, anyway. Friedrich. <laughs> Friedrich, sorry. Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, God is dead. Now, that's this famous line, but he went on to say, God remains dead, and we have killed him. The belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable. Everything that was built upon this faith, propped up by it, grown into it, including the whole of our European morality, is destined for collapse. When you give up Christian beliefs, you completely remove your right to have Christian morality. 
This morality is not at all obviously true on its own. Christianity is a system. It is a whole view of things thought out together. When you remove the belief in God from it, you make the whole thing fall apart. You will not have anything left that it needs. Somewhere else, I think he said, God is dead, all is permitted. Ah, that's true. Or as Joni Mitchell famously sang, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. (laughs) Right. Michael Sugru, a favorite online professor, says, quote, We are a culture on the whole that no longer takes religion terribly seriously. We in some respects have outgrown mythological accounts of the world, and yet we still need to do some of the things that religion used to do. We need to make judgments about right and wrong. We need to make decisions about how to live our lives. And we need to find some way of being really human in an age that seems set against us discovering an effective individuality of being something other than a cipher and a social security number. This is what we are struggling with in the 21st century. The whole thing is falling apart. It is a slow process for sure, but a relentless one. So here are the symptoms of our possible collapse. One, moral relativism. Relativism is the belief that there's no absolute truth, only the truths that a particular individual or culture happen to believe. If you believe in relativism, then you think different people can have different views about what's moral and immoral. Moral relativism is the view that moral judgments are true or false only relative to some particular standpoint, for instance, that of a culture or historical period, and that no standpoint is uniquely privileged over all others. There are no universal moral principles. Ethical relativism is the theory that holds that morality is relative to the norms of one's culture, that is, whether an action is right or wrong, depends on the moral norms of the society in which it is practiced. The same action may be morally right in one society, but be morally wrong in another. Individual moral relativism is the idea that values vary from person to person, and each person has their own valid set of morals. There is no concept of correct moral principles Everything is based on what an individual desires, and we're left with a Machiavellian predator species unrestrained by Christian guilt or platonic morality. They're in control. People dance through this subject pretty lightly, Steve, and I don't think they're drilling down enough on the implications that lie behind it. And I don't disbelieve it. I I mean, there are good reasons why we should accept relativism. It can be liberating, as our friend Tom Pasinski says. Yeah. It might be liberating to, to think, well, there's no absolute right or wrong that's being dictated to you that restricts your freedom when you believe something different. I'll make up my own truth. Well, yeah, it's a complicated question. Ah, uh, yes, but let's go back to our friend Dr. Michael Sugru. Okay. Who warns us? Quote, it amounts to moral nihilism. It is extremely dangerous. 
It's one of the most dangerous tendencies of the 20th century. In terms of politics, once we've lost the possibility of an ethical theory, haven't we also lost the idea of universal political theory? Doesn't this mean that we can objectifize all our judgments, not just of moral order, but of correspondingly of political order? Martin Heidegger put on a swastika and gave a truly rousing speech about the future of the university under the New Reich in 1936. It's okay to be a Nazi because there aren't any rules left. We can make our own subjective judgment and say, I don't like that, which is analogous to saying, I don't like the taste of broccoli, <laughs> or blue is my favorite color. The only difficulty there is that as there's as many answers to the question whether Nazism is good as there are people who want to answer the question. The problem is we're left without any weapon to combat the nihilistic and genocidal tendencies of this age. I love Sugru, and he's 100% right, but he cracks me up. I mean, if you can compare, oh, if you can compare the question whether Nazism is good to, I don't like the taste, I don't of, like broccoli. The taste of broccoli. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. it's, but, but that's, but he's right. That's, that's exactly, but he, but he, re he makes it real by doing right. that. That's when we and we talked about this in other episodes where we talked about uh, Jean Francois Leotard and um, yep postmodernism yep and that's that's where we are I mean right postmodernism didn't cause this to happen no but this is where we're at yeah and our society our society is awash in self destructive tendencies now for example lies. If morality is relative to the norms of one's culture, and the culture consists of several groups, each with their own values and morals, then actions that were once transgressions, like lies, are now acceptable in a variety of circumstances. Most everyone agrees that politicians sometimes lie. People in government must keep certain secrets for security reasons, and sometimes they lie to protect others. But many people now assume that politicians routinely lie to protect or enrich themselves. Given a widespread relaxation of strictures against lying, someone like Donald Trump telling 30,000 lies in four years in office is not considered by the supporters to be an issue. Many voters believe the media is biased and therefore disseminate misinformation, disinformation in its own interest. So the accusation that Trump lied constantly is viewed as fake news. Conspiracy theories. These are mostly egregious lies. Some are theories with actual evidence or strange contradictions and so on. But most are neither theories nor anything having to do with an actual conspiracy, unless you count the person who invented it and the other people who spread it. Pizzagate is an incredible example about a Hillary Clinton pedophile sex ring being run out of a Washington pizzeria's basement when the restaurant in question had no basement. Well, the fact that it had no basement, I think there's bigger problems with that than the fact that it had no basement. But <laughs> Well, yeah, but it was pretty easily debunked by anybody who took a stroll to the restaurant and said, let me see your basement. It was total nonsense, and yet there's a lot spread. of people eager to believe stuff like that. 
Oh, yeah. So we've really become like a divided society. Our society itself is fractured. We've always had divisions. The Civil War in 1860 and the fascist movement in the 1930s are clear examples. But the current brand of civil division is very dangerous, given the arming and threat of violence that has swept this country. In the words of W.B. Yeats, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The divisions in our society align people to the point that the end justifies the means. Lying, intimidation, and violence are permissible in the service of one's group or what one considers the right thing to do. So this results in several really unfortunate predispositions. One is political malaise. Now, malaise is a state in which there's something wrong with a society or group for which there does not seem to be a quick or easy solution. Economic malaise refers to an economy that is stagnant or in recession. Political malaise means there's something wrong with the political climate. In this case, a a breakdown in the system. Political systems depend on a constitution or charter, uh, a body of fundamental principles or established precedents, according to which a, a state or other organization is acknowledged to be governed. It is a rule book for a country. Political systems also depend on laws that define and fine-tune the allowable actions as well as traditions that are time-honored customs that are universally understood and valued. Traditions guide what is considered acceptable decorum, important decisions, and rituals. Tradition encompasses a way of thinking, behaving, and doing. The United States, in its fractured divisions in the 21st century, no longer honor traditions. It barely follow the letter of the laws. But without conforming to traditions, the political system unraveled. The media no longer follow traditions of journalism that had undergirded news reporting for a hundred years. Democracy, inundated with contradictory opinions and twisted truth, began to be shredded Deception was constant and everywhere. Opinions were presented as evidence. Conspiracy theories were treated as fact. People lost faith in the system. They distrusted elections on every level. Government officials abandoned routine systems that safeguarded elections and therefore government legitimacy. It became impossible to address major crucial issues. Then we have climate chaos. This is one of the crucial issues that political malaise and a divided society could not address. The two sides could not agree if it was even occurring. Then they agreed on the temperature getting warmer, but not that it was a crisis. They could not agree that climate change was being caused by human activity or to what extent it was being caused by human activity. They could not agree that curtailing corporate profits by any degree or increasing government expense and paying related taxes by any amount in the fight against climate change was necessary or desirable. Needless to say, there was not agreement on what, if any, action to take. And then, of course, there's the threat of nuclear war. Now, this had been averted for 77 years 
through the Cold War and proliferation of nuclear weapons. In the 21st century, there are nine countries with nuclear weapons. The worldwide total inventory of nukes is 13,080, and more than 90% are owned by either Russia or the United States. The Russian invasion of Ukraine raised the fear of nuclear conflict to a level not seen for 30 years or more. The world divided into large, powerful camps. The United States, Europe, and the majority of the United Nations allied against Russia, but autocratic Russia and Iran stood against the democratic Western countries, with India, North Korea, and China leaning towards siding with Russia. We in the U.S. couldn't agree on negotiating with Russia for peace. Our nation's self-esteem, based on belief in our righteousness, nationalism, exceptionalism, and our superpower, left no room for us to compromise. For some of us, our immortality project may be worth dying for. At this point in our history, we do not know the outcome of this conflict, but the danger is very real. Economic inequality, a major issue for which there is no agreement. Many conservatives and libertarians still believe income and wealth inequality is an essential element of freedom. Others maintain it is an inevitable result of both human nature and the decline of the American empire. Most economists maintain that gross inequality experienced in the 21st century U.S. is deplorable and destructive. With the decline of religion to provide purpose and meaning, our cultural value of wealth has risen to be a significant symbolic defense against death anxiety. As such, there is no upper limit to wealth. One can simply cannot have too much symbolic death anxiety defense. Beginning in the 1980s, the upper 1% following the economic ideology called neoliberalism manipulated the tax system, destroyed the labor unions, and reduced or eliminated corporate regulation all to their own advantage. The result is massive wealth in relatively few hands and disadvantage for the majority of working people. And then, of course, there's mental health. Our society is suffering from a variety of psychological ailments. Anxiety, 3.1% of the U.S. population. Depression, nearly 10% of Americans. Stress, 55%. And addictions of various kinds, 10%. Suicide is a leading cause of death in the United States, with 45,979 deaths in 2020. This is about one suicide every 11 minutes. The number of people who think about or attempt suicide is even higher. In 2020, an estimated 12.2 million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million planned a suicide attempt and 1.2 million attempted suicides. 21st century psychological ailments in America required a comprehensive public health approach, which, of course, we never got around to. Right. The future. Presently, 84% of Americans say they are either extremely, 55%, or very worried, 29%, about the future. 
They share concerns about health care, human rights, violence against LGBT people, racism, domestic violence, gender inequality, and economic inequality. In the Gay Science, Friedrich Nietzsche says, quote, Where are we headed? Are we not endlessly plunging backwards, sideways, forwards in all directions? Is there an up and a down anymore? Do we not wander as if through an endless nothingness? Nietzsche seemed to be describing our 21st century world. That he did. So, where is there hope? That's usually your line. I don't know why I'm asking that, but where is Yeah, especially because I don't know really what to say. I mean, I always like the question, <laughs> and some of our guests have, uh, have found some answer, but uh, as usual here, we're looking for hope. And if my favorite historian Jacques Barzin is right, we don't expect things to improve much for at least the next hundred years. Everything is pointing to a regrettable period ahead of us. As we said, our hope here is that we are preserving important ideas that you in the future will value. Perhaps the study of our time will help explain whatever future you find yourself in. Perhaps you'll be part of the effort to create a new civilization. That is our hope. Like the environmentalist who humbly plants a tree seedling in his later years, we don't expect to see the fruits of our efforts in our lifetimes. Yet, we are grateful for the benefits this one tree can offer. The endeavor is a hopeful one. We trust in the power of humility, gratitude, and hope. Let's hope, Steve, that these are important ideas. I think they are important ideas, as always. This is where we normally say, folks, join us next time. Please recommend us to your friends. We'll stay with that. But as far as next time is going to be a little while from now, we've decided to give the Hub for Important Ideas podcast a little rest and turn our attentions to some other efforts that we've been uh, looking at and working on in the background. We may be back in the future. More important ideas. But for now, we're going to let this be a capstone for what we have hoped is a 50-episode series that you found some value in. Amen to that. It has been our pleasure and privilege to bring you what we consider important ideas and the voices of so many thoughtful people in these 50 episodes over the last two and a half years. What started as something to do during the pandemic turned into an immortality project for us with a life of its own. We're taking a break, but we're not done with the important ideas. For now, I'm humble and grateful for the opportunity to have spoken to you from the heart. It's been an amazing endeavor. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.